0: So uh, it's probably good to rewind back to 2019 and I was, you know, a lot of peers here in Atlanta. We got, you know, Calendly and Rigor and Sales Law and all these big, well-funded companies. And uh, here we were in the shadows purposefully because we knew if we went loud, we're up against a company that's spending more money we could fathom in this market. So we let them do the advertising and us do the product part. We just stayed there. And then as we continue to grow, we realized that Um, in order for us to get out of this, like we're doing everything, we need some more hands to help us on some basic things. And we were at probably a couple hundred customers, I think at that time in 2019. And we're trying to figure out like, all right, let's go raise some rounds. So I talked to 60 plus VCs face-to-face meetings with all the most bizarre outcomes, which are all mostly no's, some yeses with crazy terms to them. And then... Uh, we just realized we just, I don't know, it just didn't feel good. Any of this stuff? Like what, why are we doing this? Then we started getting upset about it. The whole thing was just like, we're not built for just being a VC chasing people or company.
1: Hi there. And welcome back to another edition of built to sell radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Nick Santora, who sold his cybersecurity awareness training company, Curricula, for $22 million. But before we get there, as you're going to hear from Nick in today's interview, he established a great relationship with the acquiring company, Huntress, and in specific, their CFO. And during my research of today's episode, I found a wonderful video of the CFO explaining why they decided to buy Curricula and what that means for the future of their company. So, I will share the link to that video in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Nick, who founded Curricula after he noticed that many of the cybersecurity awareness training programs that existed were really old and stale and boring. So he decided to revamp the industry by creating fun cartoon training videos that employees would be excited to use. The decision worked for him as he grew the company to just over $2 million in annual recurring revenue before he was approached by Huntress to buy the business. Here to share with John the full story is Nick Santora. Enjoy. Nick
2: Santara, welcome to Built the Cell Radio.
0: Hi, uh, John. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, thank you. So
0: curricula, tell us about this business. What did you guys do? We essentially teach companies and their employees how to not get hacked. So at its simplest form, we made cartoons that employees watch. They learn from the cartoons and how to defend themselves. And we had some simulation stuff along the way to make it look and feel real.
2: So cool. I'm assuming you came from the cybersecurity industry then?
0: That's my background. Uh, yeah, I came from the critical infrastructure industry. So electrical utilities, protecting them mm. from cyber attacks for the government.
2: Wow, that's heavy duty. So you took that learning and built some videos that employees, was it focused exclusively on the energy sector or, or could any company use the videos?
0: Yeah. Uh, so back in 2015, we started the company that the whole goal was focused on uh, critical infrastructure protection, cybersecurity awareness training for North American Electric Reliability Corporation regulated <laughs> entities. So it's like <laughs> one of the worst like, acronym filled types of ideas possible. But
2: It's got a real marketing hook to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally ridiculous. So, uh, But it's essentially to help all of the utilities in North America are under a regulation from an agency called NERC. NERC. And they make sure that our lights stay on in this country. So I spent seven years there, moved to Atlanta from New Jersey with them. And uh, ultimately, that's where the idea came from, was out on an audit, seeing the chaos.
2: Awesome. And so the original vision was to target these critical infrastructure companies.
0: Who's the we? Did you have partners in the business or what was that like? Yes, so there was four of us, four founders: uh, myself, Joe Rucci, Daniel Abruzzese, and Juan Camarero. So we all kind of, I'd say, like the Avengers. All, all had different backgrounds, different specialties, and different kind of techniques on how we all were able to be successful together.
2: And had you guys split up the equity? Did you like did one person put in a bunch of money and then took the lion's share, or did you just do equal parts, or how did you how did you think that through?
0: Yes, so um, the whole company was based off just my background for NERC contacts and NERC, uh, regulated entities. So all of the knowledge was in, in here. So basically uh, I ran the company, I had the most equity, uh, like I think at the time it was 70 something percent. And then the rest of the guys, I went down, uh, many calculations across if the company bombed out tomorrow, you know, who would do this. I think there was an online calculator that also was playing into my like understanding of how to split equity up ultimately it was all about if I leave it's over, who's next in line that's the most important for technology, which was Joe our CTO and then the list went down as uh, roles became you know uh, needed along the way and that's kind of how I divided the equity from day one at least.
2: Yeah, it makes sense And how did you finance the business in the early days?
0: I put in uh 60 grand to to get you know out of my 401k. So I dumped everything I owned, uh, which was 401k basically, and then put sixty thousand into there. Uh Juan put in fifty thousand. So we started with 110 between the two of us. And that lasted what, two years, maybe? Two years to get us through the first few customers, got us through the 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 hurt of what it's like to have a niche so tightly niched that you need to expand. And then uh, I went up selling my condo for the second all-in to take that money, do an officer loan into the company to keep it alive, uh, keep the guys alive too. And then I went all-in on a third time later on with a credit card story that I could tell you about
1: later.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You're gambling, man. I love that. Oh, so yeah. you kicked in 60 grand out of your 401k, depleted that. And that enabled you to get uh, I guess, the first kind of beta version of the videos up? Or what did that What did that buy you, the first iteration?
0: So the goal of uh, all of this is that uh, data industry has a regulation saying you must train all of your staff that accesses these critical infrastructure components uh, every year through this certain set of training criteria. Uh, no one knows the training criteria. Everyone pretends they do. So they all just talk the talk and don't really walk the walk. Uh, so myself, I was working at the regulator. So I helped with developing the laws and standards that the industry follows and also taught the auditors and how to audit those standards and the basic principles across the country. So what better person to do this? Sure. And there's only four of me in the world that exist, And I don't think everyone else is willing to start a business that, you know, I was half their age pretty much for everyone else that were my peers. Um, so yeah, that's how we kind of got it going and just focused on the utilities to solve that one very specific problem.
2: And as a NERC employee, did you have to sign something saying, you know, you wouldn't, I mean, big companies make you sign a non-compete. You weren't competing with NERC because they're a regulator as opposed to a training company. But I guess you were taking some of the proprietary knowledge you learned at NERC and you were like, was was there any, like, did you have to stick handle around, hey, I'm going to leave, take some of what I learned and like now kind of, commercially apply it in a commercial way, like to make money. Did did you have to sort of stick handle around Nurk to do that? Or how did that, do you know what I'm asking?
0: Yes. Uh, yes. And am I allowed to, I, I, if I curse on here, can we bleep it out? I yeah. yeah want you, you probably won't even bleep it out. So yes, right. go for it. All uh, right. Yeah. So we ate a little bit of shit at the beginning there for, through, through Nurk, and it was not for any anything we did wrong. So I was very conscious that I cannot build this while working at the agency, clear conflict of interest. So uh, I quit. We spun up a website that weekend and said, we're going to build this thing because mentally I knew what to do. We just didn't have anything. And then we got a cease and desist like right away from them saying like, you can't use our name anywhere on your website. It's like, absolutely I can. So if you want to go after me, go after the hundreds of other people that are using your name, thousands. And I think it was just because I was so close to the sure. you know, thing. And then on the way out, I think everyone was like cheering for like, you know, for the most part, people were pretty happy. There was a couple sour grapes that clearly didn't understand our position that Nurk is in, in the regulatory industry. And they're like, I, don't, I can't believe you're leaving to do this instead of doing it here, man. I'm like, you realize we're the regulator, right? And we can't, it's like the IRS doing your taxes for you. Yeah, and they're you can't like, do that." <laughs> And then just like, it was so clear, the disconnect between a lot of the management. And I'm like, that this is why, this is why I think the industry needs help because everyone's pretending that they're talking the talk and no one actually knows what's going on. So I wanted to help.
2: Got it. So you, you go all in the first time. What was the reaction to the beta version? It sounds like you needed more money. So I'm guessing it wasn't like you had a floodgate of customers. Like, What was the first reaction you got?
0: So the first product was, yeah, just a training course, essentially. It was training materials that ran on our platform, our learning platform. And at its base, that's all it was. It covered these major components to teach people about cybersecurity in a very fun and actually engaging way. And, you know, the whole first year from March of 2015 is when we started uh, all the way through that year. Like, what if we build all this and no one buys it from us? Like, that would be so sad and miserable for all of us. And I am like, nah, they're gonna do it. So our first sale came in November and we sold, uh, it was a company up in Canada. And it's a crazy story because the guy just said, listen, I'm not a negotiator. He's like, what does this thing cost? You know, We love it. We think what you're doing is great. We know clearly you have the expertise, let's do it. So like, oh yeah, it's like 25 grand for the year or something like that. And they're like, great. Like we'll take two years worth of it and we'll pay upfront. To this day, we have never been paid upfront for two years. I don't know why they even did it, but that helped us so much to have that extra padding in the first contract. I bet.
2: Charging up front, got to love it. Sounds sounds like they had to, a tax bill to pay and they're like, you know
0: what? We got to so, bring down our taxes here. But, but it got even better because then at the end of that call, right before I was about to hang up and go, hey, listen, uh, I forgot his name, but I was like, listen, man, uh, you know, we we have this core product, but you also have to do this security awareness thing. For compliance that's every single quarter you have to put something up that's new what do you do for that and they're like oh you know just everyone just kind of like whatever their way i was like well we have something would you like to buy that from us too we'll do it automatically for you it's like oh yeah how much does that cost like seventy five hundred bucks a year he's like two years it'll take two years of that too I'm like awesome so i hang up the phone i was like Fuck yeah this is crazy you just got like 70 grand as our first contract this is crazy and then reality set in that we didn't finish the first product And the second one, I essentially just invented in real time on the phone. (laughs) And we had two months to do it. This is November. We had to launch in January because compliance starts then. And if we don't have it, we're going to get sued on all fronts, most likely, because we screwed up their compliance program. So that was the start of curricula for real at that point. Nice. And so did you get it done for January? Yes. We worked so freaking hard to, and this is uh, just between three of us really. So there was myself, Joe and Danny. So we were three full-time, no salary, just crazy. So Juan it. wasn't in the business, like he was an investor, but not a right, not a operating partner. He was like our sales. He helped coach me through sales stuff. We met every week, but he, I was like, just stay at your job until we actually have a whole bunch of stuff for you to sell. Otherwise you're just going to be twiddling your thumbs because I can do that part in the short term. Go so- ahead. About two years he came on later. But yeah, we hustled. We finished the NERC product. We got our first version of the uh, security awareness product. And what's funny about all this is the NERC product was the reason we started the business. Security awareness was like a little side hustle thing that I invented. Uh, The whole business is like this. Now it's all this product and very little amount of uh, Nerk SIP training. Yeah, if
2: you're listening on a device and can't see Nick, he's gesturing with his hands. But what I think he's saying, or what I know he's saying, is that the the awareness, uh, safe cybersecurity awareness product far eclipsed the Nerk product. In the beginning, the vision was to sell to these uh, critical infrastructure companies. Nowadays, the the cybersecurity product is a horizontal product right it appeals to all businesses in all kinds of industries is that is that right which enabled it to grow much more quickly yep and it was the customer financing that got you off the ground so what precipitated the need to sell your condo and go
0: all in a second time so yeah for the first time we're like this is great you know we're gonna go oh we're gonna get so many more utilities and uh selling to utilities is really hard uh selling to new technology to a utility is very hard. Uh, as a new business is very hard. And also selling cartoons to utilities that typically have a workforce in the age of the sixty plus range <laughs> is also very hard. So we were kind of crazy to think that this was even gonna work, but it did. And the people that embraced it, we changed their entire attitudes towards what training should be like in their organization. Um, but like all good things, like the industry's only a couple hundred companies in the North America that could buy this thing. So what do you do? Like we, we had a couple, like a dozen maybe at the beginning. So we're like, man, we cannot sell to some of these like utilities. What are we going to do here? And that's when the realization came in that we need to focus a lot harder on the breadth of uh, where our reach could be while having a product that can apply to every business. And that's when we went, uh, I wouldn't say all in, but a lot harder in on the security awareness side very early on. And why did you have to sell your condo? Oh, we were running out of money. Yeah, we just couldn't didn't make enough money to sustain what was going on with all of us. So at that point, uh, we, were, we launched our new website. We had, you know, it was probably that handful, 12 customers or so, um, and then paying out, you know, some basic salaries like 50 grand a year for the guys and stuff like we were able to live, but that wasn't enough to keep us going. So what I realized that in order to keep us going, we could either go raise money or, no one takes any salaries anymore again, which I did the second time. Uh, and then I said, I got this condo. I am so happy we bought this. and We moved to Atlanta and uh, my buddy and I were able to flip that thing. We bought it for like 400, sold it for like 760 or something crazy. So we both walked away with 150 cash each. And I put a hundred grand right back into the company to keep us going.
2: And and what about Dan and Joe? Did, did you ask them to kick in as shareholders to, to kind of keep the company up? going at that point or did they, were they more in for sweat equity?
0: They're in for sweat money. Like really, I had the money saved up from working at this corporate job. I was a good saver, good investor. You know, I, I did well to, to keep things going. Then I had the condo sale, which is great. So it was all those things where I was like, I can keep us going, but this is the I'm kind of the dad of the company, right? Like when all fails, I, there's a reason I had the most equity is because I put a lot of these sacrifices along the way that, um, Maybe others would have made, but I think there was no one in a position to risk that much of their own cash if you don't trust yourself that much. And did you get your partners at the
2: time, did you get your partners to acknowledge that? Here's what I'm thinking, Nick. I, I think oftentimes, you know, employees have no sense of what entrepreneurs go through, right? So they they see entrepreneurs, when they sell their company, make a bunch of money. Or maybe when they're running the company, they take a bunch of time off and and they can become resentful of like, why does he or she get all this money and time off? But they don't really understand the underbelly, the, the selling of the condo and kicking all the proceeds in to keep the lights on. Did you at that moment, while you took the 100 grand, you could have bought Bitcoin, you could have bought another condo, you chose to put it into your business. Did you go to... Dan and Joe would say, Hey, listen, I'm going to keep us afloat here, but I need you to see this is my money. I'm putting it in.
0: Oh yeah. They, from day one, they knew it. They're like, they knew they didn't have money to put in, but they'll work their butts off. And that's all I asked for them. I was like, I will make sure that we're afloat. You keep doing what you're awesome at. But I think ultimately, yeah, they, it's, it's not like they didn't know how much pain I was going through financially and all this other stuff to keep us afloat. And what were your what
2: was going on for you in your personal life at this time? Uh, because a lot of parents, when they are dealing with financial problems, you characterize yourself as the parent or dad of mm-hmm. your business. A lot of parents, when they feel financial trouble, like it can be incredibly stressful. You've got mouths to feed. you've got kids. and you know when when the numbers aren't adding up, it can be incredibly stressful. What was going on for you personally?
0: at this time in your life? I mean, we, did you have dependents? Like what was going on for you? Uh, yeah, I wasn't uh, married, no girlfriend at the time we split up. My girlfriend back then, um, to focus on this, uh, took care of my mom and I still take care of my mom. So that was financially pretty stressful. Cause like, I don't have any money, but with me, like I always have a way to get money. Like I always figured there's always a way to get money, like many ways to get money. So to start all this, I, I kind of look at my life as like a big parlay, like all in, all in, all in multiple times. When I moved to Atlanta in that condo uh, that, that we sold, uh, I had a collector's car, an 87 Grand National. It was a sick car. And it got an stolen awesome out of the parking garage, like in Atlanta. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so I was like, what the fuck? And that was devastating. But I got, you know, 12, 13 grand for that car. Like, shh, use that to buy the condo. So then use the condo to do this and then use this to do that. So I've I've always been used to kind of parlaying my money and just, I I have a very thick stomach for like high risk investments on different things. And I think thankfully because of that and maybe a little bit of luck, I've been able to time my way through a lot of financial stuff, which doesn't stress me that much.
2: Got it. So you go all in again, you build out this cybersecurity awareness product, which has applicability well beyond just the critical infrastructure companies. Every company is susceptible to, you know, hacks and so forth. And how are you selling the product? I mean, did you get sales reps or is it inbound? Like what's the, what's the sales marketing model look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, that's one thing I will not boast that we were awesome at. We just, we weren't great at sales. I think that was like pretty clear that we could have been way further along revenue wise, but that's what you get when you have two salespeople. That, like at our peak, we were two salespeople. So it was pretty much me slinging it for a long time, Juan slinging it, us doing it together, you know, trying to make sure like, hey, we're just keeping whatever's inbound. We're just handling those. We tried doing an outbound program. It bombed out. We, we tried paying people to do cold calls for us. Total nightmare. Um, so we just went back to our basics. Like we're good at inbound. Our website is so relatable to the people that are looking to buy. We got to get them there. If they don't find our website, how are they going to know who we are if we're only doing inbound? So, so how did you get the them way. there? So that was the third all-in. Uh, third all-in was that, man, we built this great site. We got this great product. We're still early on the product, but we know we can do some damage. What we didn't have was a way to get those people there. So prior to Curricula, we actually started two other businesses. When uh, when we were 10 years old, we started a skateboard company, Gonzo Skateboards. So I just order- good what? Uh, Me and Joe, Joe Rucci. We used to live right down the street from each other in New Jersey. And um, so Gonzo was, uh, we had a website. uh, We would order boards from Canada, uh, shipped in because that's where the Canadian maple is where all skateboards are. Uh, Had a silkscreen machine, airbrush machine. we shrink wrap, bring them to skate shops. That was our first business. Uh, Then we started another one called BCSL Brands that did uh, Woo, WooCommerce iPhone app was part of that uh, portfolio. And then we did a lot of online advertising. We had two companies, uh, Advertise World and BuyFastWebTraffic.com. Sounds ridiculous. Number one ranked organic SEO for buy traffic keywords, buy web traffic, Seriously. buy traffic for my website. Wow. We didn't spend a dime on ads or anything, but we sold ads. And uh, that was doing like 20,000 MRR, you know, something like that. It was It was enough to be like, we're pretty good at this. Like we know what we're doing. We're not great, but it's enough to show we're doing it. Um, yeah. So because of so that. that we, the photo so we sold all that off and then uh, we were down to again, running out of money. And it's like, I know how to do ads really good. So clearly um, from running an ad business. So I figured LinkedIn has a really interesting ad model for exactly what I think we would be good at. I got one more credit card with 20 grand limit on it all in. So that was my personal credit card. Everything else is maxed out. And I was like, I got to make this work. So I was a psychopath obsessive about how to do LinkedIn. And I'm not kidding. Within the first, I think it was three days, we got a click, got a conversion, did the demo, and then got a paying customer out of that. So we're like, wow, well, shit, like this works. So more, more. And we just kept doing it. Describe Describe the funnel to me. So what was the ad? What did the
2: ad copy say? What did they get at Like, what was the conversion like? We just describe that funnel.
0: Uh, You ever go in the mall and you see like these people free chicken samples? Sure. We literally called our marketing automation was the free chicken machine. (laughs) And it was all about like giving them something so you can get a conversation. And so we decided instead of just doing request a demo, no one wants to get a demo unless you're like a very popular like company. They just wanna see what you got. So we, our free chicken was a free episode. Watch an episode of what we produce for free, play it, share it with your whole company, do whatever you want, and you will see firsthand why this is a better alternative than all the other training providers out there. Our ad landed them on that landing page, captured their email, ran them through the machine, the marketing automation HubSpot stuff. And then we were pulling some strings, setting up demos and doing stuff manually as the signups happened, which is hysterical. Awesome.
2: So you're, you're buying the ads on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, offering the free episode. Uh, episode. Mm-hmm. And so just give me the metrics. Like what, what was it costing you to get somebody to watch a free episode? Like what did you get that cost per lead down to roughly?
0: Oof. I mean, I remember them being somewhere in like $11 per click. We were getting them down because we were doing really good with the efficiency on those uh, ads, like a 1% click-through rate, which is absurd. 1% um,
2: click through rate that's high. I'm not I'm not a, a an ad guy, so I don't tip, really know. Typically like
0: out. a point two five is like really good, like really good. And okay. we're doing over one percent click-through rate on every impression being shown. It's
2: wow. Like okay. So ridiculous. that's that's an ad that's working well. So you're getting one percent click-through rate on impressions. They and and so that's cost, costing you about 11 bucks to to run a free episode. And then yeah. what how many people did you have to put in the top of the funnel in order to get one convert to paid?
0: It was like, we were doing a lot of combos, but I'd say probably every like 10 to 20. If I were to take a guess, like maybe 20, every 20 people coming in, we're getting someone to buy out of that. Okay.
2: Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're like at that rate, it's like a couple hundred bucks per customer. Right. And what would they pay for an annual license
0: on average? Well, at the beginning, we were charging way more than we do today, and uh, that's because we have a competitor that raised a half a billion dollars in funding uh, oh, wow. that was going alongside of us the entire time, doing an A, B, C, D, and now they uh, went public. It's a company called No Before went public for four billion dollar valuation, and oh, then yeah. they just announced uh, last week that they are being bought private equity for four point six billion, and they were our direct and only competitor that discounted prices, 90 plus percent on every single deal at this time. Wow. So so because of that, we had to adjust our pricing to just basically drop our pants and be like, whatever they're charging, we cannot be like cool and trying to charge more because people just don't care. They're just doing a land grab right now. Um, Wow. So that hurt because as a bootstrapped company against a company raising hundreds of millions of dollars in the same space, Who's gonna win right it's like mm-hmm. we just survived i think in, in the in the short run at that time um but yeah so we priced it to be like a couple by like two bucks a employee per month maybe a little less usually a dollar between a dollar or two okay and then what
2: like what would the average contract value be like in a year of a of like how many employees would like on average i'm just trying to get it like if it was costing you two hundred dollars to win a customer, like how much would you get in the first year from that customer on average? So
0: every single year. contract is an annual contract at that time. So everything's paid up front, like ninety-nine percent of everything, and it's for, it depends on how many employees. So if it's a three-hundred-employee company, we get like five grand, six grand for the year. If it's a twenty-person company or five-person company, we get five hundred bucks for the year. Got it. So it's good to talk to the mid-sized, larger companies because they pay us more for the same amount of work. But the small companies pay us, but they're so small, like the, the dollars like were too much. So it's hard to do the math on a sales rep to hit $500 a year accounts all day long.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. You had to kind of have the uh, the digital inbound funnel. So so yeah. you don't recall on average, so somewhere between 500 and 5000 was the yeah. average. But it was like, yeah,
0: like two, two to three grand maybe on average for a regular customer. So very right. low, very low. We're not talking the enterprise sales that every other SaaS company is doing, like $15,000 ACVs for every single contract. It's like, we weren't even close to that. So yeah. we had to be thrifty with our marketing and inbound.
2: But even at two grand, it's still you know 10 times more than it's costing you to acquire a customer. Sounds like a pretty, yeah. pretty good deal. And there's some tail to it too, because their annual contracts, I'm assuming they renew automatically. Or did you, how did you renew
0: automatically? Yeah, automatic. How was your churn? Super low. Like- the only, back then, I mean, we would could count the customers on our hands. Like, oh, this one happened because their CISO left. This one happened because they just got bought. And this one happened because their IT director quit also. It's like, those are three, like in one year. So, you know, as we scaled, it started to still stay relatively low, very low churn rate. Um, what, what did kill us was that when a customer churned, it hurt because it'd be like, A big one, like a well-known brand enterprise name churns. Like there goes 70 grand, you know, ACV. It's like, all right. But on the quantity of logos that are churning, it was a handful. Got it. Yep. Yeah. So
2: real. That makes sense. So you launched in 2015, you had these kind of all in moments. At what stage, when did the specter of this billion dollar competitor kind of come on the horizon? Like when, when did that happen? Instantly from day one, 2015. Wow. Day one, they raised $8 million. million. Yep. (laughs) And so how big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? What was the, either in revenue or
0: some proxy? We were some, uh, we were between 15 to 20 employees because we had people come and go right towards the end of the when the transaction was happening. Uh, About two and a quarter million in ARR. And... What was very interesting, and I could share more about this, was our strategy to flip to the uh, PLG model, product-led company model. And we launched a freemium version of our product in November of 21, and that changed the whole trajectory and dynamic and inbound lead flow like crazy for us.
2: I got so many questions about that. First of all, what does PLG stand for?
0: Uh, Product-led growth. So it's essentially focusing all of your efforts for the organization and the sign-up process support it around and inside the product through automation as best as you can.
2: I'm still confused.
0: I now understand the acronym. Uh, you know, <laughs> product Calendly, Calendly. Have you heard that app where yep. you book it? Uh, led growth, right? You go to the website, you sign up, you get a free account, you use it, you love it. You put it in a credit card. You never had to talk to anyone. That's all product led organizations. Follow that method. I got it.
2: I got it. Yeah. So like kind of direct to consumer, although that's probably not exactly the right corollary, but effectively it's the product that makes the sale as opposed to a salesperson or whatever. Exactly. Got it. That's, that's helpful. Now you mentioned this freemium model, November 21. So you, so you get the free chicken sample model, the LinkedIn ads, (laughs) right? Watch a video, you like it, buy, great.
0: How is the freemium model different than that? Um, The freemium model is like a sampler platter, like it's just one bite of each thing. So it lets you get a couple episodes, it lets you get access to our phishing simulator, it lets you get access to our content creator, it lets you get access to the reporting and LMS function. But then when you say, I wanna do more than just one episode or more than creating one piece of learning content, you just put in your credit card and hit upgrade and you're ready to go.
2: And how did that change your business model in November 21?
0: Big. So we uh, averaged anywhere between like 100, 150 signups a month that were coming inbound at that time. When we launched the freemium, um, that lifted to about eight or 900 signups a month.
2: You're kidding. Wow. Yeah. And how are you getting these, these
0: signups? Is this still through LinkedIn or what? what's the top of the funnel look like? Uh, LinkedIn, me doing social stuff. I had a pretty good follow, like 10,000 people following that are in the IT security industry on LinkedIn. Um, we're doing Reddit ads. We're doing Google ads now. So we're spreading across a couple spectrums. And then we also had some integrations with um, partners where they're doing compliance automation. And our freemium model helped solve like a triangle of problems of like customer comes in that needs to get through SOC two. They'll go to a company Drata is one of our partners, who's a you know billion dollar unicorn company does compliance automation. Um, Drata connected to us to say. Can we give these people the free account to help them with their sock too? It's like, yep. And then by doing our free account, we help the customer. So the goal is it's a long play of like as those customers go through and grow, they are already using our product on the free version. Why not just upgrade to get all the other tools?
2: Makes a ton of sense. So so this kind of you know four four to eight X'd your number of signups by going to freemium. What Huge. was the what was the the economics of turning off the, the, you know, the paywall at the very beginning, because freemium is great, but you do give up some people that would have bought at the end of the trial, at the end of watching the one free chicken sample video. <laughs> right. How did, did you ever look at the economics of that and whether it was worth taking out many more free signups to give I, up
0: on some of the, yeah, go ahead. I bet you if we had just a ton of salespeople we would have done it different, but we were really in a mindset of like, how do we do this as automated as we possibly can, knowing it's not gonna make us the most money because we just can't, with the amount of people we had, zero sales reps, how do we do this? And by the time we sold the company, we had two sales reps. That was the maximum we've had. So what we realized is like, how can we automate some of those things from the buying process that, yeah, we might have people stuck in the free tier for a year, two years, maybe, I don't know. But what we're doing is we're taking them away from them going to any other competitor. They're in our platform. They're using it. Cause if, dang, if they can't use it for free, they're not going to pay for it. So if you get them to, to use it, see it, feel it for themselves, no one needs to actually sell anything to them. And that is truly what happened is that we were building a big pipeline with a huge flywheel behind it. How did you get them to use it? Um, a series of activation emails. So, well, we realized that when you go into the app, there's a couple things to set up, like go watch an episode for yourself to see if you like it. Uh, add, add additional managers, add in all your employees in here, launch the assignment and do like, whatever the steps that we laid out, is like five or six steps. Those were right front and center as soon as you logged into the app, but we had to get you into the app and we had to remind you to get in the app. So as part of our marketing automation, we did a very slick job of this. I I know this to Juan, he he made the food court, it's called. And it's just a sick marketing automation that looked at all these different stages that were happening, made a a special trigger to the app talking back to HubSpot and said, if they didn't launch an assignment, we made like special attributes. If they didn't launch an assignment, that means they didn't use it. Trigger another email talking about assignments. So we kind of just built this really personalized workflow that when we turned that on, it was like 30 plus emails that just got fully automated in the conversation as they continued to achieve steps along the way. And that helped with activation a lot. We, we went from like 10 to 20% activation to well over 50% activation for free accounts.
2: Wow, that's incredible. And it was literally just this, this 30 email sequence workflow that you were relying on. Did the that's workflow have videos in it or was it just text?
0: It had some videos, images of our stuff, like, you know, but it had like a welcome video. We recorded how-tos and stuff. So it was, all it was trying to do was being like an activation specialist where it was basically the the computer was trying to help guide buyers through their setup journey. Sometimes they don't make it through. And sometimes for good reason, it's like a large company that says, I want to buy the big enterprise plan. I want a demo. And it's like, oh, okay. Then we didn't ignore those people. We would just get on the phone and talk to them.
2: And I want to understand how this activation sequence ran. So let's say they've they've got to do task A to in the in the in the next step of the food court. You send them an email to go do task A. Two things happen. One, they do it, two, they ignore it. If they do it, I'm assuming they then go on to task B. What did you do if they ignored it? Did they stay at basically, did you declare bankruptcy on that customer, or did they get another email? To, to another attempt to, to to get them
0: to do task A or did you flip to task B? Several more attempts on task A. Like it still looks like you didn't uh, get your learners synced. Are you having trouble? How about this article? Like we we did multiple attempts and then even when that failed, we would still move them through the chain because sometimes they just might not have been in the right state of mind to set that up. And then if you hit them again and not, not give up on them, they would activate because the, you know, oh, I, I never did watch an episode yet. Let me go in and watch that right now. And then they'd knock out all their other stuff.
2: Got it. Got it. Yep. That makes It worked pretty makes, good
0: for a robot, I would say. That
2: whole thing. <laughs> well, 10 to 50% activation sounds like a pretty good uh, hit rate. So by the time you sold, you were at two and a quarter million in annual recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And 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 that still seems fairly early. You're five or six years into your journey. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people are, you know, their foot's on the gas. They're thinking, you know, they're going to keep keep this business forever. Was there like a straw that broke the camel's back that made you think, well, oh, maybe now is the time to sell or some sort of triggering event?
0: So uh, it's probably good to rewind back to 2019. And I was, you know, a lot of peers here in Atlanta. We got, you know, Calendly and Rigger and Sales SalesLoft and all these big, well-funded companies. And uh, here we were in the shadows. Purposefully, because we knew if we went loud, we're up against a company that's spending more money we could fathom in this market. So we let them do the advertising and us do the product part. We just stayed there, and then as we continued to grow, we realized that um, in order for us to get out of this, like we're doing everything, we need some more hands to help us on some basic things. And we were at probably a couple hundred customers, I think, at that time in 2019, and we're trying to figure out like. All right, let's go raise some rounds. So I talked to 60 plus VCs face-to-face meetings with all the most bizarre outcomes, which are all mostly no's, some yeses with crazy terms to them. And then uh, we just realized we just, I don't know, it just didn't feel good, any of this stuff. Like, what? why are we doing this? Then we started getting upset about it. The whole thing was just like, we're not built for just being a VC chasing people or company. And... We just kept doing what we were doing and we just kept building and kept growing and kept getting customers. And then uh, I pitched at Venture Atlanta, which is going on right now here in Atlanta, back in 2019 and basically told the world, here's what we're doing. I flew to Boston, New York. We ultimately met with a group called RCP Equity, uh, which is founded by uh, Joel Smith, who uh, sold his company App River to Zix Corporation for like 300 million or something the, the year prior. So he was kind of like a family office, kind of like a very weird, unique blend between VC and private equity type world. And uh, they knew our industry. They were all from security and email security stuff. So uh, when we started talking to them, what I realized is that we should have spent more time talking only to investors that know this market and not to all investors. That would have saved me uh, 70% of my year wasted time with a bunch of weird, really awkward conversations and it would have just like put us in a better position. But yeah, we did a deal with them for uh 3 million series A. That was our first and only round of funding. And then- How,
2: how much oh, the good. company did you have to give up for for 3 million?
0: About 20%. So they're valuing the company. Wow. Uh, 11 change, 11 change, uh, per and change, pay money. What was your revenue at the time? Uh, we're just under a
2: million ARR. Wow. So they're giving more, you more than 10 times
0: ARR valuation. Yep. Wow. I think it's also, you know, we had our, we had all the cards in our hand. We could say, do whatever we want. We don't need anyone's money. We, this is really just to, we're going to this destination. Do we take an Uber and pay a fee or do we walk? And that's how we pitched to everyone. We're like, we are different than most startups. We've been bootstrapped for five and a half years. At this point, we have our own strategy to not just go raise money and crash or be hyper successful. We want to have a good outcome with a lot of equity between the founders, uh, fit their model really good. They also love the uh, channel ecosystem. So basically letting channel partners resell curricula instead of us hiring our own sales team. So that deal closed in uh, December 31st, four o'clock in 2019, celebrated for a little bit, got pumped and then hired but it was like eight people to come into the office on March eleventh, twenty twenty. Oh my! Gave gosh. them their laptops. I literally gave them their laptops. Said, "There's a little thing going around. We'll see you guys in the office in a week or so." Some of those people I never saw again, in my life <laughs> ever. So I've quit. Uh, but ultimately, it took about a year or so to see those people in real life. And uh, I think only one stayed from that whole group. Wow. Did wow. the transition, and I'm very thankfully did, and I think he is too, because it was a good outcome for everyone.
2: Yeah, well, let's talk about the outcome. So, so you take on a uh, three million dollar round Series A in two thousand nineteen. So, you you said less for one because I think I asked you what precipitated, what was the trigger. So it sounds like there was some trigger that your investor uh, was involved in.
0: Yeah, it was just I think it was we were looking at how do we grow, how do we get this thing to the next level, get a few million in ARR so we can figure out an exit plan. Because we're already five and a half years in. We don't want to do this for our whole lives. So it kind of made sense of like, let's get someone to help us. I'd take a loan. Like, I don't want a VC. I just wanted to get a loan. Apparently, that's really hard to do when you're an awkward teenager like us, where we were just big enough and not big enough kind of thing. So it was the right move. Uh, Great partners. They helped us every single day with our financial models, like accounting work. So all these things that we just needed generally help with. Uh, Aureen, uh, which we just went to dinner with him last night. Uh, awesome guy. He's just, he was a previous banker. So like, it was almost like we had a CFO on our side without having to go hire for a CFO position. You said, our, say his name again? Uh, A-U-R-E-E-N,
2: Oreen. Awesome. And so Oreen was from RCP, the, the yes. investor. Yes. Got he it. He was assigned okay. to
0: us basically as like our go-to guy.
2: Got it. So how did you come into contact with the ultimate acquirer, Huntress? What was that story?
0: So, so then we're, we're here, we're hustling, we're building this thing, we build the channel version one, it flopped, you know, we hired this guy flopped the whole channel team quit basically, or was let go in some way. So we basically said, let's rewind and go back to what we're good at, which is inbound direct sales, crush it. We crushed it on that. And then things started doing really well. Um, what what happened in December, I think it was, or November of 2021, we were out at a trade show, a channel-focused trade show. Apparently, someone from Huntress is out there. I think it was Chris, their CTO, is out there, saw our booth, talked to someone. I didn't meet him. But then when I came back, it was one of the last meetings I took in December just to, you know, uh, Chris, was their CTO, he called me up because their investors wanted to connect us, uh, ForgePoint Capital. And... So yeah, shoot the shit. So we were just having a blast talking about like how hard startup stuff is, all all these different things. And uh, they ended up just becoming a customer of ours. Like, damn, we need this too. So I might as well just buy it. So they were using us. Huntress Huntress is is a uh, cybersecurity company that's focused on the endpoint. So it's mostly on uh, a piece of software that sits on a computer that uh, is being monitored and looked for for behaviors and different file changes and things that are coming in, malware, suspicious things. That software talks back to home base, the Huntress HQ app. And there's threat analysts looking at like real things and updating stuff in real time. Essentially the goal is they can find a piece of bad shit on your network or computers and kill it before it kills you.
2: Got like, it. So they're in the cyberspace
0: in a yeah. different different part of the business, but in the same industry. Got it. Okay. Right. That's helpful. Very complementary to very detective control. And we're kind of the preventative control. So um, so we so we're talking about this stuff. We meet in December. They become a customer. January comes, and I'm on the phone with uh, Scott and Lauren. Lauren's our VP of marketing. Uh, she left right before the transaction to go over to our partners at Coalition Cyber Insurance. And then Scott left uh, to change career paths and stuff. He wanted to do more. But anyway, we're getting the call with Kyle, CEO, and Chris, and they're just like, "Hey, listen, man, we want to buy you straight up." <laughs> Like, and I'm like laughing. I was like, ah oh, man, it's not the greatest thing to say in front of like these two people, which eventually quit. I don't know, because they had a fear or whatever it was. Um, but in my head, I'm like, get in line because we were already talking to people uh, from November, the prior year, uh, strategic buyers. So I already had several meetings with CEOs and executives of these strategics. So I was like, oh, well, I guess something happened where energy of the world just said, all these strategics are ready to buy and like, look who's on the market. That's not a hundred million dollars. Us, like we're one of the few that were left. And we had a clean cap table, not a lot going on on that side and relatively inexpensive compared to our peers. And uh, so we just kept the convos going with everyone. And ultimately it came down to a gut feeling of, of like, what is the right home for myself, for curricula, and where my legacy will live on this business? And I just didn't see that with some of the other buyers. Like they probably were gonna offer us more money on some things and like different perks and stuff. But it's like, ultimately, I think the long play on this will be more beneficial than if we took more money in the short term from any other buyer.
2: So I wanna get into the into the long play and the structure of the deal, but I'd love to just know you thought get in line when Chris and Kyle said, Mm -hmm. we want to buy you? What did you actually say? What were the words that came out of your mouth at that
0: point? I I literally think I said something like that. Like, hey, there's other people looking at us. And I think it was about like a month later, we did a follow-up. I didn't say a word. Like, that's cool. I'm just soaking it up. Because they were, you know, not a lot of pressure. Like, we're going to buy or build someone and we're already talking to these people. So you let us know. So like, okay, so we're exploring all these other opportunities. And then about a month later we met up and, and they're like, so you know, how are you thinking about things? Like, well, uh, you guys know that you're not the only people that are looking at us right now. And I think that put a little bit of urgency across everyone of like, I can't do this back and forth with every company. So we put a deadline. We're gonna make a decision by, I think it was May or June. You're welcome to put in your, your hat in the ring to, to do this because we like, genuinely, we like them. They're a startup. We thought they were fun. Great group of guys, similar core values, similar, like looking into a mirror. It felt like, um, see, so yeah, I think I did say something like get in line or like there are other people in line. Like I'm letting you know that there's more people involved. It's not just one-on-one here. And, and what information did you share
2: with the potential acquirers, Huntress, and also the others that you were talking to? Uh, I mean, did you put together a SIM, a confidential information memorandum or like some sort of summary of your basic numbers, revenue, AR, that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, we did just, you know, conversations. We uh, flew out to one company and had some deeper conversations. Um, I met some people here in Atlanta, some conversations. So it was a lot of just like you either get it or you don't. And you have a very explicit need for this or you're just like window shopping for something else. But so. you're,
2: you're t- you are telling them like your ARR is around a million, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. a couple million at this point. You're, they, they know that piece. Go.
0: Yep. Yeah. All that is like, whatever, like you can find out all that. It's, you know, and here's our secret sauce. We make these cartoons really hard to do. We're really yeah. good at it. You go try to do it. Our competitor has billions of dollars. They can't do it. They're trying to figure it out. They're clunky as crap. So that was kind of our strong foot of like, we know what we have. We held onto it this long for a reason you know, we got to find a good home. We're not going to just throw it on a shelf. So it becomes shelfware for a big, large corporation. Who made the, who was the animator? Like who made the cartoons? Um, that's Danny on our team. He's kind of the, in charge of the creative episode side, uh, as well as me kind of helping with like the, the training and the, the hard concepts that go into it and some of the storytelling. And then Don, uh, Don and Ray are the uh, illustrators that, that put all this stuff together. Okay. So you had a team. Got it. Oh, yeah. makes sense. So
2: you put a date together. you said, look, you know, give us your bids. How, did you get multiple offers? Like, did like what was the reaction to your bid day? Did you get bids in hand?
0: We were basically saying, have your answers by this time. Okay. Right. It was like, don't put a final number in because I think there's tons of conversation that is going to happen to get numbers going. Once you learn, we just don't want to waste all of our time having individual conversations throughout the whole year. So So what happened next? So as we got to that, um, we did, you know, we had some NDAs with other companies. They looked at data rooms with some redacted information. We shared all that across everyone. And ultimately, I think when we flew out to one of the companies, um, I didn't have a good feeling at all. Like, I was like, this is where we're going to have to work. Like, everything's so brown and cubically. I can't, I can't do this. Like, this sucks. So I, I also looked at the position of where curricula needs to fit. And I think a lot of the companies we saw, they were, although they were excited about us, I think what ultimately they were gonna recognize that, or, or I was gonna recognize the hard way is that we would have to adapt and sell only to the largest of the largest enterprises. And I, I dislike the large enterprises, not because I hate them. I just, the sale is a totally different beast. It's more about features and functions and just doesn't work versus like, does it do something awesome for my company? So, our SMB focus was our bread and butter, uh, sure as shit, that Huntress's only focus was on channel SMB. And it was like, whoa, like these two moons aligned. We're like, we built an MVP version of our channel system here. We don't have anyone working there or running it, and it's still making money. It's just like automated. They built a whole ecosystem on the channel. Let's mush them together. Take what we built and apply it with your sales team, and let's go nuts here. And it was, Nuts how that all lined up. What do you mean by channel? Um, channel partners are like it resellers. So it'd be like a like a managed service provider or someone that you pay to do your outsource like help desk, but they yeah. also do other IT services like email security and things like that. They could buy through us and then manage it through us and resell it to their small business customers. They get a cut, they get a little cut of margin for that.
2: Yeah. And Huntress had built this channel, whereas you were fully uh yeah. product led growth or you know direct response.
0: Full direct mid market, I'd say ninety-eight percent was direct mid market, this much channel, tiny tiny. Uh Huntress has tens of thousands of businesses all focused on channel.
2: Also Got it. So <laughs> so Huntress wanted to sell your product through their channel. Right. Got it. And equally, did Hunters also want to learn your secret sauce for direct response marketing? Did they view a, a, like an idea that they could sell direct some of their 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 software?
0: Yeah, that's what we're doing now. You know, obviously these first few months, like a lot of learning of like, who's doing what? How are you successful here? And mm-hmm. what we've been really successful with is just the design of our mid-market engine and automation engine. We just personally didn't have, I mean, the one uh, girl quit The day we announced the announcement, our other salesperson quits. We only have one salesperson in the whole company. So we're like, we got 800 leads coming in the door, one salesperson. What do you expect with our revenue here? So we're like, give our leads to your salespeople. We're going to light this up.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's
0: about to happen in the next uh, few weeks here.
2: I'm starting to understand the strategic fit. So at what point did you all start talking numbers like who made the first move? Did you say, look, it's got to be this number or did they kind of come forward with a, a shot in the dark? What was the, what was that? Pretty,
0: like? I mean, they kind of threw out some stuff early. I like Kyle threw out some stuff, like, you know, some low, like six X multiples and stuff. Like those are fine. You know, it's just not what we're going to do. So, you know, you can take that back to whoever needs to hear that. And then I think one night we talked and I I remember just saying like, if you just just don't embarrass anyone, don't put in a bid if it's less than 20. Like we're just not going to, it's not going to be entertained by anyone.
2: Less than twenty million, right? Got it. And so you kind of put that floor out there, and and so that at the time represented you know a little shy of ten times your annual recurring revenue, right? And so for folks listening who aren't necessarily familiar with the recurring revenue models, they're going like is he not talking multiples of EBITDA like even like a six multiple of EBITDA sounds pretty amazing for a 2 million dollar business no you're talking about six times revenue and you're and you're and you're and you're not even considering that so like help me understand that so like where are you getting your numbers from to suggest that a six times ARR Multiple is not good enough. Is not even worth considering. Like, what are what you lo- like? What are you looking at in the way of benchmarks that would make you kind of turn your nose up at that kind
0: of offer? A couple of it was just like our industry, right? There, there's uh, knowing the scarcity of how many companies exist like us that have a cap table like us that are going to be worth less than a hundred million dollars, and that's one. That was basically us,
2: because everyone else. But we're sitting here saying, but all it is is like little animated
0: videos on how to avoid cybersecurity it can't be that hard to replicate, can it? It it uh, takes a long time, especially when you're fighting the biggest, one of the biggest players in the cybersecurity industry is, is the company we were up against. So I think like the clout of how did we make it is something not only bizarrely special, um, but also from the generation we were doing, we had about uh, six to 8,000 accounts signed up within those, months of launching the freemium, which all could be sold to.
2: But at some point, Huntress is saying to themselves, if these guys get greedy, like we're just going to spend the money because 20 million bucks is a lot of money. 10 million bucks is a lot of money. <laughs> they could have created a lot of good videos for $10 million and, and had the asset to go sell it to their channel. So again, I'm I, they must have really saw this IP as unique, they could not right. replicate it. What was their reaction to, like, if it's not going to be 20, don't even bother? Like, did you get a look at their eyes, their facial expression, their body language when you threw out that number?
0: No, I was on the phone when I was traveling for okay. something. Was so, there a
2: pause or like, a, are you freaking kidding me? Or like no. any of that stuff? the tables.
0: It was like respectful of like, we all know the multiples of our industry and our numbers and cybersecurity that we know their are multiples. We know where we can go raise a VC round and just get a 30X multiple on our revenue if we wanted to. We were so, we had a lot of paths to choose and our choice was our own, no one else's. So we could choose to sell it or we could just keep doing what we're doing and continue to dominate because we just hit a really nice inflection point that was very clear and obvious that we're about to explode. So it's either take it or leave it and if you didn't want to take it then we will grow it on our own. And yeah, clearly this cl-
2: clearly this was a marriage made in heaven like if you think about the you know the fact that they built out a channel you were almost direct like all of your sales were direct you had all these customers I mean it 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 does feel like a very strategic deal. What was your reaction to the to the letter of intent they gave you?
0: It was good. We did a little negotiating on some stuff back and forth on there. Um, we uh, rep and warranty insurance was kind of a clumsy one because the deal size is so small for that, that it like, I wish we could have done that instead of holding money in escrow and stuff, but it is what it is. You know, it's, uh, you know, we got through that part and then relatively painless on some of that stuff, at least. So we
2: explain that for folks. Uh, what is rep and warranty insurance and why would your size make a difference to it?
0: Apparently, under so rep and warranty insurance, like you're doing a deal like this, it's basically uh, all the representations you make when you sell the company, you're writing them down. You're saying it has, this, it has this, all these different things that you said. You and paid your to. taxes, you don't have any yeah. like, outstanding lawsuits, et cetera. Yeah, you're not criminal, <laughs> you, those, the code. You, you own this stuff, all these different things. There's a lot of yeah. them. You go through a million of these things. And then the insurance is like if something goes wrong with any of this stuff, like it comes up, or like, you know, there's. Uh, A customer complains about something along the way or like some type of data breach happens or there's just a lot of stuff that could be misrepresented that the insurance could cover from this is what, from my knowledge of what I know about rep and warranty. So instead of two options to take, there is one, take the, uh, take the deal size and go out to market and say, I need rep and warranty insurance for a $22 million deal on this. Here's the circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Who's ready to underwrite it? Like 100 to 200 grand to underwrite that. It'd be an 18 month uh, policy. Once you're past those 18 months, then you're out of your warranty essentially, and then the, you basically just coughed up the 100 200 grand collectively. The alternative, which we chose because we couldn't find anyone to underwrite the rep and warranty because it's so small. Apparently, the whole deal um, usually it's in the you know 50 plus range is where it starts getting interesting for someone to underwrite. Um, so we did an escrow. So we just basically held. A uh, good percentage of money is small, but good percentage in escrow to lock that in, to say no one can touch that for 18 months. And then if something you know goes wrong with the and warranty or whatever it is, we got a couple little cascading things. That money is the pool that we're using to kind of like budget for an insurance claim of some sort. After 18 months, that escrow gets released to everyone. Got
2: it. Yeah. I'm used to seeing like kind of five, 10%. What, like, is that in the range of where you guys landed on escrow or something in there? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And so, how did you structure? So, what was the ultimate uh, value they placed on the deal? I think, I think um, Huntress announced as twenty two million. Is that it? Was that something in that in that neighborhood?
0: Yeah, yeah, twenty two and change. So it's just easier to say twenty two. <laughs> yeah, writing and stuff. So yeah, it was right in that range.
2: And that's how they valued the company. Usually, in these private equity deals, they'll ask the owner the owners to roll some equity? Did you have to roll some equity? And how did you guys structure that piece?
0: Yes. So um, knowing that we're like, we're still early enough size wise, and there's just so much knowledge up here between the four founders. um, We're on a, you know, earn out type uh, environment here. So for the next uh, two years, basically, to, to get things organized, hand off things, dump out institutional knowledge and making sure like this thing can run without us. That's that's my goal. When we feel good, we all feel good because that means they are running and owning the whole uh, operation at that point.
2: Yep, yeah, makes sense. And the twenty-two million valuation is that assuming you hit the earnout, or would the earnout be above and beyond that? So
0: it's uh, interesting for us because I guess it's an earnout, but we're not. Uh, we had one salesperson. So like none of this was focused on like sales performance because that's crazy. So most of it was all focused on IP and making sure the technology and uh, content, everything was really robust to be able to integrate into their tool. And then their sales team does the damage on it. So we're on just a time-based earn out. There's no milestones to hit.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Great. Which is unique, so I guess, lo- in, the, in the world. As long as you stay employed and do the work right. then you you stand to earn the earn out got it it's and i
0: rolled again. um 50% in so i took 50% cash 50% rolled and then uh danny rolled 50 and then the other founders did uh like 30 something percent
2: got it so you've got some skin in the game still to to capitalize on this union that we think is going to really play at the same time you've got some cash out and right. And hopefully you're doing something fun with the cash. I'm going to ask you what you're doing with the cash Mm. as part of our lightning round, which is a series of questions uh, that'll just take a one or two word answer. Are you up for that? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Awesome. Awesome. All right. What was the most questionable tactic someone tried to use on you? When I say questionable, I mean unethical, sleazy, whatever word you want to put on it to try to get your company. I know you talked to a lot of investors, so I'm guessing there were some, some slimy tricks along the way.
0: Uh, just trying to get access to customer data. I think that's like a pretty easy one. Like, If you're a competitor and you want to see the list of customers, like that's not going to happen.
2: To <laughs> so, customer level, individual names of customers, trying to get that.
0: Yeah, like conversations and stuff around there. It's like, nah.
2: Not happening. Biggest mistake <laughs> you made personally in the process of selling your company? Hmm, biggest
0: mistake? Mm, I'm sure there is one. I just can't think of any. I think we were very fortunate on how we had a support team to get things done. And I tried to be as transparent with, uh, the people I could as possible during the process. So I don't have any regrets or anything. Um, at least off the top of my head, but no regrets, but I know that
2: selling a company can be very emotionally draining. Oh yeah. Did you reach a point, uh, you know, uh, a bottom so to speak in the process of selling your company where you were just kind of emotionally drained?
0: Of course. Yeah. Trying to run the company, grow the company and sell it at the same time. And it, and we're talking a team that's 14 people. Describe <laughs> the lowest point. Uh, Rough. Like like feeling like you want to throw up in the toilet every day and you don't have anything to throw up. Uh, was
2: there a trigger that caused you to feel that way? Like was there like a negotiation hiccup or something last minute that happened that you were that, – that just kind of caused you to – lose
0: steam. Yeah, I think there was like a lot of back and forth on some stuff. Probably can't share too much on some of that back and forth. But yeah, there was definitely back and forth that um, frankly, it's just talking with lawyers is I hate it. It's so backwards on how to do stuff. So what we try to do is like, if it's a real thing, we try to talk to each other as real people, because when the lawyers get involved, everyone wants to lawyer up. Lawyers want to win. They fight each other to the death. And I don't think that was advantageous. So maybe that was probably the biggest mistake was letting lawyers uh, talk too much on some. Yeah. Warren Buffett's
2: famous for saying like, I want a deal where, you know, I can write it down on one piece of paper, talk to the owner, look him eyeball to eyeball or her eyeball to eyeball and get a deal done. And then once we agree to the one piece of paper, then I'll let the lawyers have a go at it. But yeah. until we agree, the worst thing you can do is negotiate the lawyers. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing Warren Buffett. I'm not sure I've got it quite right, but he's, I think, a, a believer in that.
0: And they helped a lot. It's just like some of these things that are just like, you're just trying to win it to win it at this point. Like. Come on, let's skip past this stuff. Why are we arguing over this?
2: Yeah, yeah. Did you ever reach a point in arguing where y- you felt like, well, maybe this deal is going to blow up?
0: No, I wasn't really there. It was just like, why are we arguing? You know, and I think it's more of like, let me just talk about what's going on, the real reason of what's going on versus letting a lawyer protect the reason of why we're saying what we're saying. And I think that. Worked wonders to just be like real, like and vulnerable. Like this is what's happening. I'm just telling you. This is, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even know how to talk how they're talking right now, but I'm trying <laughs> to tell you the truth and not just like a cover-up lawyer process on how to get through that truth.
2: Yeah. What was the highest point emotionally that you reached along the sale process, the sale journey?
0: Uh, the highest was just when the money hit the account. I'd say that's like that's real. Right. Everything Where else is all fake, you know, until the money hits the account. Where were you? Um, so it's an interesting story, actually. This is probably be funny to share is uh, prior, this is about a month or so prior. We're going through the process. You know, we closed relatively quick. I think it was like 45 days or something. Um, so I asked, I was like, hey, when we close, like, I'd like to take my guys out on like a trip to, to you know, hang out and like just disconnect for a week on all this chaos. cool. Cool. I planned it to be like three, four weeks out from an estimated close date. Uh, we wound up closing that Friday before the trip <laughs> and we missed the cutoff at six o'clock for the wires by three minutes or something. So we're leaving on Monday to fly to the Bahamas. Uh, I've maxed out my credit card. I don't even have money in my credit cards to go on this trip with these guys. And we go there and I was like, man, there is, uh, we're not seeing like, And the money hit the account. It's like, this is so stupid. I was like, why did I do this? And then we're at the airport. I'm looking before we even fly there's no money in the account. This is like 11 o'clock on a Monday after the close. Like, this is so ridiculous. So I was about to write an email to the CFO, but like, we we talked a lot during this, like what is going on? But I held it, we fly, we land, open up the roaming. And then like both of our wives are like, money hit the account. We're like, yeah, what a trip. Let's go win some money, and we won some money down there too, which is nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Five points <laughs> yeah, too about close. Way that's, too close. It was so silly.
2: That's amazing. Good for you. Um, what resources can you point our listeners to? Any resources that they could turn to to educate themselves about the selling of a business? Any courses, content, uh, conferences that you attended? Anything at all that you could you could point
0: people to? The one thing I'd say I was very excited and helpful is Aurene uh, was a former banker. So he's our, on our private equity team. He managed our accounting and bookkeeping. He knew everything. So he's also done a lot of deals. So he knows the dance. And I think that's very important to understand how the dance happens from whether you're gonna go outbound and go do a uh, outbound campaign to a bunch of buyers, whether you're going strategic, whether you're going private equity, it all matters a lot because that'll focus your efforts. Um, thank goodness we had Arrene because he basically kind of kept the dance going for us, helped with all the diligence and paperwork along the way, which we were pretty organized in the first place. Um, but I can't stress how I pay for that. If, on the next one, I pay to have that person by my side because it's very exhausting, nor did I even know what to do by myself. So, I don't know if that's advice. I just say that's a real thing. Other than that, I just talked to a million different people, startup founders. Uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, another good one is um, Greg Head's got the Practical Founders podcast. It's a nice one. I'm not right one. Greg, what's his last name? I think it's Greg Head, I think his last okay. name is. Uh, practical we'll look practical founders, up. practical founder. Okay. We'll look I it up was on it, it as the like the, the 10th guest or 11th guest. So it was right after we closed. So you could hear kind of some of the more dynamics in the deal on that one too.
2: Oh, that's great. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes at built.com. Yeah. Um, tell me you bought yourself a trophy. You bought the trip for your team. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate this, uh, this win. Uh,
0: too interesting tidbits on that one. So what we're actually moving to Florida and that was actually like by choice, we wanted to go there. We put our name on a list like two years ago for a house there. And two weeks after the deal closed, they called us up, our names on the list to, to go build. Like, this is crazy. So we're going to be moving to Florida. That's our big purchase. We're going to, you know, go, go down there. And that that's super cool.
2: I hope you enjoy the Florida house. The house I think it's awesome. gets- Incredible. Um, Nick, if people want to reach out to you on social media, what's the best way to do that?
0: Um, LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. In the past couple months, I haven't been as active, but that's probably the best place to find me talking about stuff is just, you know, you search Nicholas Santora on there.
2: Awesome. And we'll put uh, Nick's profile into the
0: show notes at build Nick, thanks for doing this. Nice. Thank you, John. Appreciate having me here.
1: And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Nick Santora. If you did, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then I would encourage you to share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would be truly impacted by today's conversation. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the video I mentioned in the intro, you can visit the show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you can nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.